come to kindergarten chaos. The Developmentally Appropriate Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Scott. (laughs) Hi, Dad. Hi, Lenny. (laughs) Thanks for being my guest host this time. Boy, I am so excited to be a guest host on this blog. It's a podcast. This is an experience. Oh, blogcast. No, it's a podcast. Oh, podcast. (laughs) I'm so happy to be on this podcast. So the reason I wanted to talk to you this time is because I interviewed Emily from the Literacy Nest and she it's her passion to work on things that will help teachers teach their students with dyslexia. So I wanted to talk to you for a second because you have dyslexia. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I've had it all my life. And it doesn't go away. Uh, you know, Sudoku is extremely hard. Sudoku I, is? Yeah. Because, Why? well, it's because it's, it's numbers. And numbers, when you're dyslexic, numbers don't really, sometimes they don't make sense yeah. to other people. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, when you're dyslexic, people don't understand that you can be looking at a word, and to you, the letters are in a certain order, mm-hmm. but, they're, but the word is really not in that order, mm-hmm. but, your, but your brain can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I do numbers, I have to make sure that I check them two or three times because my brain will play tricks on me, and I won't even be able to see what I'm doing wrong on the numbers. So you've learned yeah. to be very cautious, I guess, then, or yeah. very thorough. Yeah, I've had to make sure that uh, that I look at it two or three times. And when I was a, a educational business manager in a district where I had to keep track of the budgets and lots of figures and, you know, big uh, graphs and big spreadsheets, uh, sometimes I would look at them and and I'd know that there was something wrong because it it wouldn't balance. Mm-hmm. But it was but I couldn't figure it out, so I'd have to go get my administrative assistant and have them do the calculations to help me find it because my brain would reverse some numbers, mm-hmm. uh, the order of the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't matter how many times I added it up, if my brain was going to reverse that number every time, I would still get the wrong answer. You're still going to miss out. Yeah. So tell me what what it was like for you as a child going to school. Well, school wasn't very fun when I was little, when I was in first and second grade, because uh, I... The dyslexia I had was the reversals, and so, like I said, the words were in a different order. The letters were in a different order than everybody else, and so when they would do the robins and the bluebirds and the buzzards, I was always the lowest person in the buzzards group. Did they really call it the buzzard group? No, we, we called it, like, the yellow birds, but everybody knew... Everybody knew? ...that that was the... <laughs> 
that was a group that couldn't read and so uh, and it was extremely difficult to read and it was extremely uh, well it wasn't so embarrassing because you were a little kid but it was very frustrating because you'd see a child reading and you would look at the book and try to read and you would think you're doing it right and it wasn't right mm -hmm. and people back then didn't know really how to help you that much mm -hmm. so, wh so what what happens well I couldn't read and so uh, uh, I went when I went to third grade I still couldn't read and so they talked to mom and decided that I needed to go back to second grade again and do second grade over again because I couldn't read. Mm -hmm. So I did it again and had the same frustrations I did. But there was a lady uh, that lived kind of in our neighborhood in the farming community I lived in. And there was a, uh, a program in a town about an hour away from where we lived. Uh, that helped kids with these issues and so for my for my whole childhood my mom would take me up to this town it was called Twin Falls and I would be there for an hour and then they would show me little films where the words would go across the screen so you, you had to train your eyes to read the words in the correct pattern and they had leveled books that you started out on and you had tapes that you listened to it was you know I was little so it was I didn't understand it all but by going and doing that I, I learned how to read with my uh, with dyslexia and also when I was home I had to do exercises that were meant to coordinate the right and left hemisphere of my brain like what, so what kinds of exercises Oh, like I'd I'd walk around the room, and I had to, I had to walk in different patterns. Like when I walked with my left foot forward, I had to bring my right arm forward, so it was opposite. Mm -hmm. And I had to crawl. I had to crawl for fifteen minutes every night, and had to crawl in a certain way, different patterns. Mm -hmm. And somehow, that helped me train my brain to to deal with dyslexia I don't know how it worked I just did it <laughs> you just and, did what they said and, yeah and I I think I did that from like uh, second grade until about sixth grade I can't re remember going when I was in sixth grade and I learned how to read I don't know how I just learned how to to deal with it uh, but all of it, but you know, looking back on it now, I understand it more because of my educational uh, training. Mm -hmm. But I really liked math, but math was really hard for me mm -hmm. because I would mess up the little things mm -hmm. like the multiplication or the subtraction of trigonometry, mm -hmm. and it was because uh, of the reversals of the the word yeah. of the the numerals. Yeah. So by sixth grade, had you kind of worked your way through it to where you had coping strategies to, to take care of what you had to do in school? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and I, 
and so like sixth grade I kind of I felt like I was you know I wasn't a poor reader I probably wasn't a really good reader but I wasn't in the bottom group and then uh, in seventh grade and eighth grade I started learning how to to study better and so by ninth grade uh, I was doing really well in school and you're doing really well now (laughs) well yeah I, I graduated from my high school in the in the top 10 and I went to college on an academic scholarship and I got scholarships to go back to do my uh, master's degree and graduated from college with uh, straight A's and went on and got my doctorate so whatever those little classes taught me taught me how to to deal with it so so what would you say to teachers now who have dyslexic students in their classrooms? Well, they have to understand that that you can't just say, you know, read more books, or you can't say uh, just keep trying and trying because uh, those children will try. As it, it doesn't help just to keep trying until uh, a process is put in place where it teaches them how to deal with their dyslexia because they'll they'll just read the same words over and over again as they see them in their head. They'll just keep being the same because they yeah, don't have so, the strategies. Because they don't have the strategies and, and their brain hasn't been trained to to do it. You know, I was, I was studying some brain science on how kids learn and it's uh, and it's all about the patterns in your brain. You know, kids that learn to read early or have uh, experience with books and experience with readings, and and they've been able to train the brain to cross over the hemispheres in the correct manner, mm-hmm. so that you can read. And now they have, uh, you know, they have programs and they have games that kids can play that actually process the brain and train it to think the correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a perfect lead-in because we have an interview with Emily of the Literacy Nest who's going to talk about some of the things she can she can provide for people who have dyslexic students. Well, what a wonderful lead-in. So that, that was, was really awesome. Good. <laughs> good job. I did really good, huh? You did great, Dad. <laughs> Would you mind talking about yourself first, introducing yourself and your website and what it is you do and who you are? Sure. So I'm Emily Gibbons, and I blog under The Literacy Nest. I have worked with children from ages one all the way up to fifth grade, mainly elementary school, though. Um, I taught as a classroom teacher, mostly in third and fourth for uh, 12 years and within that time I was an inclusion teacher so I had children in my classroom that had reading disabilities uh, may have been on autism spectrum disorder on the spectrum um, speech and language you name it so the one thing that really stood out to me was these children that clearly were dyslexic and I really wanted to find a way to reach them. Mm-hmm. I switched jobs in 2003, I switched districts. And 
they immediately sent me and any other new teachers to a training in multisensory systematic phonics instruction, the program called Project Read. Mm -hmm. And that really turned on my love of multisensory instruction, first of all, but how to really get these kids to become readers. And then another thing that really clicked with me was a book that I read back in 2003, Overcoming Dyslexia by Dr. Sally Shaywitz. And that was a really groundbreaking book for the dyslexia community. It dispelled a lot of myths about what dyslexia was and what kids need, what parents can do, what teachers can do in clear language. The biggest thing about that book was that Shaywitz could show through MRI what the brain looked like while reading, which is really fascinating to me. And then that just really, things took off from there. I read that book in a book group, became trained in Project Read, but I knew I needed more. I was only a classroom teacher, but I still felt like I didn't know how to reach these children. One in five children in our classrooms have dyslexia. So it's prevalent. It's something that teachers aren't trained in mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. I went through my entire master's program in literacy. The word dyslexia was brought up zero times to me. Mm-hmm. And that was really fascinating looking back as to why. Why aren't we talking about this more? So I got to thinking about how I'd like to become trained in Orton-Gillingham. And that's an approach to teaching children how to read, once again, using a multisensory approach, systematic phonics instruction. So we, um, in the, the district, were, they weren't really willing to send me to the training unless I was a special education teacher. They didn't want to send classroom teachers. I went, paid for the whole process myself. I went through a year-long training. And that really, once again, lit the fire for me to see what happens for when a child cannot read. What is breaking down for them? What can we do for them? And OG just spells it out so beautifully for me. And I absolutely love the process. I believe in it wholeheartedly. I believe in that approach that this is really just the gold standard for helping struggling readers with learning how to read. But before we can get to using an Orton-Gillingham approach, we need to show teachers and explain to them, you know, what is dyslexia? What are things that you can look for in the classroom? Um, What are the myths? What are the facts? Things like that. And that's really missing. So I completed my training and a year later I became pregnant with my twin boys. And I said, Oh boy, look at this, you know, and and that was the beginning of a brand new, beautiful chapter for me. I left the classroom because I knew I wanted to be home with my kids, Mm -hmm. missed the classroom a whole lot. But at the same time, I knew I just, I have such a a thirst for knowledge for this stuff. Mm -hmm. I just constantly interested in reading more as much as I can. So I started under the name The Reading Tutor of Orton-Gillingham. It's kind of a 
convoluted name looking back, but I, um, I, I did, I was doing some private tutoring while I was home with my boys and I still do. Um, but the page sort of took off when I opened a teacher's pay teacher store and realized that while there's really a need for quality Orton Gillingham resources, but also to get the word out there to teachers about how you can do this in your classrooms it may not look the same as an Orton Gillingham lesson in a one-on-one setting, but there are so many wonderful ways that you can incorporate this approach in your classroom. Mm-hmm. K through eight, really, and, and beyond because Orton Gillingham is for any age, really. Um, so now four kids later, um, <laughs> I continue to love what I do. I am, um, just so blessed to meet the people that I do online to work with the dyslexia community and spreading the word through my literacy nest Facebook page, through my blog, um, creating resources that I just really believe in that I know are helping children Mm -hmm. and just getting the word out about dyslexia in general. It's just, it's been the most amazing journey. And even though I'm not in the classroom as a classroom teacher anymore, I just love the pathway that I have that I'm on now. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's opened some great doors and, um, I'm just so happy that, uh, people want to know more about it. (laughs) Yeah. And what can you, what would you tell teachers about dyslexia? What is it you'd most want them to know? Because I know I've had dyslexic students before and I, like you said, I knew nothing. I knew nothing from all of my training about it. I think that there's some wonderful research now coming out. It, it's such a fascinating field. It's, it's not static. It's very dynamic that dyslexia is something that can be identified so much sooner than what people typically think. Sadly, we are on sort of this wait and see approach Mm -hmm. with children. We kind of wait for them to fail around third grade. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting because I taught third for so many years and that what I, that year is the grade I call really the end of the line. Mm -hmm. If you don't get it by third grade, this is it. Mm-hmm. Things change dramatically from third to fourth. It's a big transitional year. Yeah. So we can help to identify it so much sooner. If you, well, first of all, it's hereditary. So teachers should know that if one of the parents is dyslexic, then there's a 50% chance that the child is going to be as well. <clears throat> so early identification, I think, is so, so key. If you have a kindergartner that really is not picking up on the alphabet whatsoever, if they're not recognizing any kind of rhymes, like in nursery rhymes, if they're not picking up on all those things of language and the play on words that you do and your shared reading and, and chants and poems and songs, those are some real bit big red flags there. And I think that instead of using this wait and see approach, I think if teachers feel empowered enough that they should know that it's a good idea to, to talk to 
um, whoever you know the team is in charge of early identification in their school and and really move forward. Now it's 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 a difficult situation because you have many schools that don't want to use the word dyslexia at all, and so um, they might call it something else like a language based disability. Um, but I think it's really important that we and there's a hashtag for it that we say dyslexia. We call it what it is. And children with dyslexia, anybody, are real think-out-of-the-box people, outside the box. They are very big picture. Mm. They are highly creative. There's a large percentage of dyslexic, uh, dyslexic people that go on to be very successful entrepreneurs. They're very entrepreneurial. Um, <clears throat> but sadly, the dropout rate for people with dyslexia or people that wind up in jail is abysmal. So it's really a personal mission of mine that we're getting this dyslexia awareness out, but also we're transforming society here. And that's a pretty powerful mission to say that, but it's all starting in these young grades. Right? It starts with preschool and kindergarten. So um, I think that that helps to answer everything. Yeah, it does. Question: What can you what can you tell teachers about Orton Gillingham? Because I hadn't heard of that and until recently, so I don't know anything okay. about it. So Orton Gillingham, first of all, people think is a program. It's mm -hmm. not any one program. It's an approach. There's methods that we use and it's called Orton Gillingham based off um, from Dr. Samuel Orton and Anna Gillingham who met together around the 1950s. But Samuel Orton had started this research, research um, far before that around the 1930s and they got together and uh, they had written uh, the Orton Gillingham manual but really looked critically at what was called the language triangle. So if, if within your instruction of Orton Gillingham, if you are touching on the visual, auditory, and kinesthetic, and if you can picture that in a triangle, if you're touching on those learning modalities all simultaneously at the same time, then we are really building new neural pathways. We can remediate what is going wrong with the language piece of the reading disability and correct that through systematic, multi-sensory instruction within that language triangle. So that's kind of one of the hallmarks of Horton-Gillingham. Um, I know some people think, oh, Orton Gillingham, it sounds really dry and boring. Absolutely not. I, I really try to um, poo-poo that whenever anybody <laughs> says that. It's a very, they're, they're, because it's a very systematic approach, that there are, there's a certain lesson format that we use each time, it doesn't mean that it isn't dynamic or changing. Within, I work with a lot of children one-on-one, -on -one, so... What I absolutely love about the process is that whenever I'm working with a child, I have the freedom of being able to change up what I'm doing to meet the needs of that child 
within the moment. Mm -hmm. And I am always collecting data, both mentally, but also writing things down to see, okay, what is going on with this child? Why are they making that reading error? And what can I do to correct it? That's another part of it. It's very prescriptive. Um, if you're working one-on-one -on -one with a child using the approach, then every lesson is tailored to that child's needs and meeting the needs of that learner. But if you're working in small groups, there are certainly ways to get around that to um, cater to a larger group. And there are, um, what we have to also say is that Orton-Gillingham uses an approach where there is not, there's reading, spelling, writing kind of happening all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and can you, I see that on your website, you have a lot of Orton-Gillingham lessons that look like a lot of fun. Yeah. That you said people think of it as dry, but I'm looking at your lessons. And they oh, no. Far, yeah, my, far dry. Could you describe for somebody a couple of your favorite activities that you've got there? Well, you know, I try to make my game, uh, well, I have to say a big part of the Orton-Gillingham lesson is spiraling back, is reviewing back. That's a big portion of any Orton-Gillingham lesson is to have a review portion. I always tell my kids, if you don't use it, you lose it. So we're constantly bringing it back. Okay, what did we um, talk about before? What were we doing in the last lesson? And it's really important to put, I think, the ownership on them as much as possible. So within these games, I try to keep them active, but also try to delineate, okay, are we going to do a reading game where they're going to practice reading words or sentences, or are we going to incorporate a game where they're doing some dictation and some spelling or syllabicating words? And it may sound like, oh, that sounds kind of like they're just going to spell words, but it's even just simple board games with a start to finish, kids absolutely love. Dice games, they love. Just that um, aspect of, you know, luck and chance built into any review game. Believe me, kids love to play. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have to remember when you're working with children that need Orton-Gillingham instruction in a one-on-one -on -one setting, these kids do not like to read. <laughs> so you have to really get creative. They're very strategic, <laughs> but in a good way. Mm -hmm. So by playing games with them, you learn so much about their um, own personal strategies with game playing, but how they approach words, how they read words. And it is such a confidence booster for them. And, and that's just the beauty of it is part of this whole process is building up their confidence. Mm -hmm. And that is so, so important to these kids. They have been beat down, wound up in tears, crying over homework, sitting there in fear in the classroom. Using the Orton-Gillingham approach is just so it, it's it's a predictable format, but it's also really empowering for them. Mm -hmm. So um, I love to play really a variety of games. I actually love to play the tried and true game of concentration with kids because a lot of children with dyslexia might have poor working memory. Mm -hmm. So a game of concentration can help um, can help remediate that. But uh, you know, spinner games, just a wide, wide variety of things. But 
I try to get them up and active a little more now. So if I create a spinner game, you know, and they land on something, they may have to like get up and do a certain action or, <laughs> or do or use one of the multi-sensory techniques like arm tapping or tracing words in sand or mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I'm, I'm very flexible. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, and I, I wondered this when I saw some of your activities because, <clears throat> sorry, <coughs> I found with, um, with some of the tactics you learn for teaching kids who need extra help, they're just good for everybody. So yes. Are there any things that you would, like if you walked into a classroom right now, are there any suggestions you would give the teacher of little things we can do to make things better for everybody? Yes. The biggest thing that I would tell teachers is if you don't have a listening center, get one. <laughs> like immediately. And the biggest reason for that is children with dyslexia really need that auditory piece that auditory output to build up their fluency and their comprehension. They're actually great listening comprehenders, mm -hmm. but when asked to follow along in a story, they need to see the text in front of them and hear it read to them too, mm -hmm. as much as possible, mm -hmm. as much as possible. So that means if you have an old listening center that's been building up dust in the corner of your room, break it out. And, you know, I mean that for any grade. And if it's a matter of, well, I don't have the old huge headphones and the, <laughs> the CD player, you can... You can set up a listening center really easily at a computer. You can get a cord splitter and put two kids on a computer and listen that way. You can, if you are blessed enough to have those, uh, to be able to you know, use iPads, technology. Um, I There are some great apps out there. Um, I'm a little cautious of apps that read the text out loud this, where the voice sounds like a robot. Oh, yeah. Um, kids don't really... Especially kids, kids with dyslexia, eh, don't really like that. And believe me, I've, I've spoken with kids about this. They don't, they want a real voice. So that's the big thing. Grab the listening center, have that access for your kids right away. And all kids like to go to the listening center. Mm -hmm. My, my third graders loved it. It was also, it was always one of my rotation stations. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing make sure you have a really good set of magnetic letters. Mm -hmm. I love the ones from really good stuff, like the foam ones. Um, but you can get some cheap ones too. I just really like the feel of those. Um, have those out, have those small magnetic boards just so kids can, you know, you can build in that tactile piece for tracing over letters when you're saying sounds, because you know, one of the things we do, say I'm doing the letter a and you may be looking at the letter A, we'll have a keyword and you have a sound. So we're saying A, apple, A. But as you're saying A, apple, A, you may be with your fingers tracing over a magnetic letter or in sand or in shaving cream or something, sandpaper. 
Um, one thing I really love with kids, so I have some kids that can't stand the touch of sand and the <laughs> sandbag. So you get that plastic cross stitch mm-hmm. and it just, I don't know, you know what I'm, what I mean? Like, like yeah. People do. I, I don't. Yeah. So. Like the, the <laughs> anyway. plastic grid, right? Yeah, the grid. Yeah. So you can use that. Um, so those are some tools to have in there. Um, I would say really try to build up some, you don't have to have a huge number of games, but if you can teach your kids four or five tried and true games that will touch on reading, writing, and spelling simultaneously, those are powerful. Have those available. Um, And I always say, you know, aside from Orton Gillingham, you've got to have some good fluency intervention in place. Um, and that means really investing in a good fluency program. Mm-hmm. Um, because for these kids, that's the ultimate goal. We want readers. Mm-hmm. We want fluent readers. Mm-hmm. So that's another piece. Okay. Do you have anything else you want people to know about um, just any advice you would share? I think that children with dyslexia tend to get so down on themselves and we as teachers sometimes tend to look at the things that they can't do and get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, look at their strengths and work to those strengths. Are they really good at, you know, this particular subject area or this particular activity? Great. Play to that and build on that. Learn what their strengths are. Get to know them. Find out their interests so that you can pull as many books as you can that will be of interest to them because that's always difficult is getting books that they'll be interested in actually sustaining and listening to or reading to them. Um, Engage the parents as as much as possible to say, um, you know, I'm aware that your child has some reading difficulties and this is what we're going to do. This is how I'm going to follow through. This is how I'm going to check in with you and just stay on top of things. Parents, I believe, really want to know, are they making that steady uphill progress? And isn't that the goal for all of our children? Are they making progress? So certainly um, stay on top of that. And I, I wouldn't be fearful if you have a family coming in, you know, with their advocate and things like that. Just just know that this family is concerned about their child. And it's up to the teacher to really be a good listener and have those tools ready to go and be forthright in using them and keeping the families informed. I think parents really, really appreciate that. The other thing is um, read as much as you can about dyslexia. Start with going to the International Dyslexia Association website. That's a great start. If you want to begin really understanding what dyslexia is, start like I did. Open up Overcoming Dyslexia by Dr. Sally Shaywitz. That is I think one of the best books to start with Mm -hmm. Um, if you're uh, interested in this whole um, area of reading. 
It's fascinating to me. And um, certainly keep in touch with me if you ever have any questions. I, I'm so, so willing to help as much as I can, as many teachers as I can in answering questions. Um, I, I have a lot of ideas. I know sometimes I may, <laughs> I may be like, oh gosh, she has four kids. I don't want to bother her. <laughs> oh no, how does she do it all? No, I, you know, I'm, I'm so passionate about what I do with the labor of love. I, I would love to be able to help as many people as I possibly could with this. Because I, like I said before, I just so believe in the Orton-Gillingham approach and helping children mm -hmm. um, and helping teachers. Well, thank you for being that resource for people. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? And Sure. So my blog is www.theliteracynest.com. And if you go there, you can, you can see my posts. I'm really excited for the upcoming springtime because I have three or four really amazing guest bloggers that are going to be helping me out. It's the first time I'm doing this. So I'm just thrilled that I have been able to grab more people on to help spread the word. Um, and then my Teachers Pay Teachers store is an easy address to remember because it's just www.shopliteracynest.com. So I made that really short for people to remember. Um, and, you know, I don't just have Orton Gillingham and Phonics resources. I have... You know, I, I love writing poetry, so I have some fun poems there for, for younger classrooms and and um, some great nonfiction and things like that. So um, I, I actually even love creating math resources, but I'm so ingrained in, in <laughs> I just stick with that. I don't put my math hat on very often, so, but I do love it. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, um, and then, of course, you can, my Facebook page, I, I post regularly I'm very active on there and that's once again the literacy nest and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and all that and um, that's it yeah thank you thank you for sharing you're and very welcome really a really good resource to know about because I'm I'm certainly glad I found you thanks so much for listening everyone goodbye love you Lenny <laughs> love you too dad bye bye Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, a network of podcasts for educators, by educators. For more information, visit edupodcastnetwork.com. That's E-D-U podcastnetwork.com. Now can I listen to it?